Welcome to our time of study in God's Word. This is study number 88 through the Gospel of John. And today we're going to look at John 15, 18 through 25. And the title of our study today is Hated Without a Cause. Would you join me now in prayer? Father, as we come to now to your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, and authoritative word, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to see great and wonderful things, that you would illuminate your word to us. As we look at this difficult passage, Lord, help us to understand the cost, to count it, and Lord, help us through the Holy Spirit to walk with you daily, counting the cost of knowing you, not just knowing you, but delighting in you. Lord, help us to find you to be our supreme treasure and our supreme delight. And just help help us now, Lord, as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, uh, 25. And here's what God God's word has to say to us. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they would also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause you see you and i as christians we live in a world that is increasingly increasingly hostile to the christian faith and what we need to understand is what uh is what Dietrich bonhoeffer said about this grace this grace that we believe that it is costly grace that it cost the lord jesus christ something everything his all Jesus didn't just give part of himself. He gave of his whole self to the whole mission of God, which was to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, Jesus' farewell discourse contains some of the most encouraging material in the whole New Testament. For example, in John 14, Jesus told us, how he would provide for the disciples during his absence from the earth, primarily by sending the Holy Spirit to guide and empower them. John 15 trans transitions 
to the disciples' responsibility, but that too involves a great encouragement of knowing that if we abide in Christ as a branch in the vine, then we are sure to bear fruit that glorifies God and blesses others. But Jesus' last topic in this chapter is less encouraging, but it's very important. And according to Jesus, there will be a cost of following him that must be faced. His followers will be heeded by the world. And just as Jesus was savagely opposed by the people of his time, despite his loving ministry and his godly life, so also must those who follow him expect hostility and persecution from the world. And the cost of discipleship is often a subject that is left out in evangelistic appeals today, and even from instruction on Christian discipleship. This is true at least in the Western countries, if you live in the West like I do, where persecution has been mostly mild. But Western Christians are often concerned for fellow Christians who are persecuted in other lands, but they in turn express concern for us that our easier setting has fostered a shallow spirituality. Consider the words of Peter Kuzmik, a Yugoslavian Christian who suffered under communist persecution, who says so much Western evangelical religiosity is so shallow and so selfish. It promises so much and demands so little. It offers success, personal happiness, peace of mind, material prosperity, but it hardly speaks of repentance, sacrifice, self-denial, a holy lifestyle, a willingness to die for Christ. According to Jesus, such an easy, persecution-free Christianity is far from normal. Indeed, a kind of Christian faith that involves no sacrifices and produces no opposition from the world around us is, according to the New Testament, not true Christianity at all. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So first, let's consider this topic, hated by the world. And Jesus taught the inevitability of the world's hostility in a comparison from the greater to the lesser. John 15.18 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And he was not suggesting that the world might not hate Christians. Rather, he's assuming with certainty that as the world hated him, it would hate his followers. <coughs> and in speaking of the world, Jesus is talking about the whole world system that is opposed to God. The world is not the physical earth, but the controlling mentality of unbelieving mankind with its rewards and its sanctions, its expectations, its ideologies, its practices, all of which are in rebellion to God and His rule. And in the context of Jesus meeting with the disciples, the world was present in the form of the Jewish leaders who opposed His teaching of grace. And in latter years, when John wrote this gospel, the world was operating in the form of the hedonistic Roman Empire. And there were many differences between the Jews and the Romans, one being moral and the other immoral. But they were united in their opposition to God and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to Jesus, a defining characteristic of the world is his hatred of him. John 15:18. it is hated me. And how vital it is for Christians to realize that the world's hostility to Christ. What danger we court when we think the world is safe, 
that his attitude and ways are compatible with faith in Christ. And yet even today, we have popular conferences that follow this model, this line of thinking. We think that to be innovative is cool. So let's pursue entertainment. Let's have smoke coming out of our stages and so on and so forth. And, and it goes on and on. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments, If you want to know what this world is like, look what it did to him. He gave himself to healing people and to instructing them. He went about doing good. What was the response of the world? It hated him. It persecuted him. It rejected him. It chose a murderer before him. It crucified him. It killed him. And there on the cross he exposed the world for what it is. So Christians who think they can live openly, faithfully, and fruitfully for Jesus and yet enjoy the favor of the world are deceiving themselves. Jesus says in John fifteen eighteen, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before I hated you. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord, saying this. And the word hate is a strong one. And Jesus chose to, to convey the true feeling of the world for those who authentically follow him. He uses the word eight times in this passage. So that hatred is a dominant response of the world to Jesus and to his people. And this hatred for Christ is expressed in a myriad ways. Worldly people casually blaspheming the name of God's Son with such contempt for them, Jesus Christ is primarily used as a curse word. Thus, dramatically, people shun any exposure to the Bible's teaching and react with outrage to the doctrines that Jesus taught. An example is in John 6, when Jesus fed the crowd and then they then taught them about the atoning, his atoning death for sin. And after this teaching, the people grumbled and turned away, John 6.61 and John 6.66 says. This hatred for Jesus' teaching would ripen until the crowd in Jerusalem shouted for Pontius Pilate to crucify him in Luke 23, 18-23, an event that would take place the next day after Jesus' teaching in John 15. And this hatred for Jesus Christ is being seen in a case brought before. Excuse me. We are seeing this today in cases in the United States Supreme Court all the time. We are seeing this in the media all the time. And the issue is, people don't want us to be Christians. They say, oh, you know, it's, it's tolerant for me to believe what I believe and to say whatever I want to say on whatever news network I want. But if Christians start talking about Jesus' bloody death in the place of sinners and for their sin, that he was buried and then he rose again, and that salvation is exclusive to those who believe in Christ alone. Meaning that there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. And that a man is to be a man. And a woman is to be a woman. And that marriage is one man and one woman for life under God in covenant with Him. No, no, no. If we preach that if we teach that message we are hated we are discounted we are told we are bigots 
And we are wrong. You see, but what Jesus wants us to understand is, is to count the cost in following Him. Now, there is, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, a costly grace. And this was a man who faced persecution during World War II under the Nazis. He was in Germany. He counted the cost. But the world does not stop at hatred, Jesus insisted. In John fifteen twenty, he says, Remember, the word I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Earlier that evening, Jesus pointed out that servants are not greater than their master. And on that occasion, reminding the disciples to serve one another as Jesus had served them by washing their feet. And this principle holds true for the world's hatred as well. The world that crucified Jesus will not leave his followers and his heralds unscathed. The world that responded to Jesus' teaching will, will respond with anger today likewise to our preaching of the gospel. An immediate application of this teaching is that we should not make a pretense of following Jesus unless we are prepared for the world's scorn and for persecution. And for many of us, this persecution will involve little more than social ostracizing and unfair harassment. And these things can hurt very deeply, as anyone who has been slandered and mocked can, be, can attest. And for Jesus, disciples in Jerusalem, this persecution quickly developed into official demands for silence, which we also might receive today. The apostles and their followers at first enjoyed favor with all the people. Acts 2.47 says, Just as Christians, Christian love will win us many friends, but as soon as the gospel is publicly preached, the world struck back. Acts 4.18 records, the Jewish Sanhedrin is ordering Peter and John not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. When, when the apostles refused to comply, they were publicly beaten, Acts 5.40 says. And before long, the Jews stoned to death Stephen the deacon for his preaching, Acts 7.58 says. And then they launched a full-scale assault of intimidation, of arrest, and violence against Christ's followers. And by the time that John wrote this gospel, Christians faced death all over the Roman Empire for their profession of faith. Virtually all the apostles died from acts of violence and official persecution. And this raises two questions for us. The first is whether or not we're willing to be hated and persecuted for Jesus. Many Christians wonder, would I remain faithful to Jesus Christ if threatened with death? And the way to answer is your response to whether perse the persecution you face right now. If you hide your confession in the face of social shunning or unfair harassment, then it's not likely that you will hold fast to Jesus in the face of death. It is of the greatest importance that we not shrink back from persecution. For Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32-33, Everyone who acknowledges me, acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And the second question is whether there is any reason for the world to notice and persecute us. The world does not hate a false Christianity that differs little from itself. 
The world will tolerate a Christian who remains silent and fits in, but it hates a living testimony to the saving grace and a truly holy life. And if you were arrested today on a charge of discipleship to Jesus, would that be enough as evidence to sustain the charge against you? Let's consider reasons for the world's hatred. At the end of this passage, Jesus said that the world hated me without cause, John 15.25 says. But this does not mean that there were no reasons for the world's hatred. Jesus provides three reasons for the world's opposition, beginning with the fact that Christians no longer belong to the world. John 15.19 says, If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. According to Jesus, the world loves its own, that is, those who share its self-centered, man-exalting, and sin-permissive values. It is not the weakness and the failures of Christians that the world hates. The world actually loves these. This is not to say that Christians who are being obnoxious should blame others for the opposition they experience. The point is that Christians must realize their allegiance to heaven through biblical thinking and biblical living will generally infuriate a world in rebellion to God. See, not only are Christians hated because they're not of the world, but Jesus also says in John 15, 19, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And if there is one biblical doctrine that is loathed by the world above all others, it's the doctrine of election. And that is the idea that God, by his own good pleasure and sovereign choice, selected some to be saved and permitted others to perish. It's maddening to a worldly mind. And so offensive is this teaching to the natural man that even many Christians object on humanistic grounds to the Bible's clear teaching on election. John 15:16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you, Jesus said. And this above all, the world hates. And not only is the doctrine of election a source of worldly hatred, but so are the effects of God's sovereign grace in the lives of his people. Christians possess a new and a heavenly nature by the new birth. They enjoy peace with God through his forgiveness in Christ's blood, and they possess a sure hope of an eternity in glory. And these privileges of our election receive a great hostility from the world, which thereby acknowledges their existence. As long as our election out of the world and into Christ's kingdom remains an in-house doctrine bearing little evidence in our lives, the world can ignore and therefore tolerate our doctrine. But writes A.W. Pink, when I have chosen you out of the world becomes a practical reality, then the world's rage and bane will be displayed. And the next reason for the world's hatred of Christians sums up the whole. Jesus said in John 15:21, All these things they will do to you on account of my name. And this is the great point that Jesus wants us to know. The world hates his disciples because of him. And therefore only because we bear his name. And this is our single greatest privilege. It ought to be our single greatest joy. To bear Christ's name amid the world's hatred, amid the world's persecution. And when we are persecuted, simply because of our faith in Jesus Christ, out of our love for him and the power of his kingdom at work in us, this blesses us richly. It proves as little else can do.
do. That we must be children of God and citizens of the heavenly kingdom. J.C. Ryle says, Persecution is like the goldsmith's hallmark on real silver and gold. It is one of the marks of a converted man. And there are several reasons why we must not betray our allegiance to Jesus under persecution, including fear for our own souls and simple loyalty to the cause of Christ. But the blessing of suffering, not only for, but with Jesus, is one for which we may be truly thankful. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And likewise, when Peter and John were publicly beaten for their refusal to, to cease preaching Christ's gospel, they departed. Acts 5.41 says, Rejoicing, they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And therefore, in the face of persecution for our faith, we ought to pray like the early Christians. And not only did they decide not only did they not decide to scale back their public witness of the gospel as some Christians advocate for us today, but they did not even ask the Lord to remove the persecution. Instead they prayed only, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants and continue to speak your word with all boldness, Acts five or four twenty nine says. Next, let's consider the world contend for hating Jesus Christ. And for Christians today, the world's persecution of Jesus works for blessing through sanctification. But for the unbelieving world, it leads to a great condemnation. Jesus earlier told the disciples that he came as a true revelation of God the Father. John 14.9 says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You see, the world's hatred of him exposes its ignorance of God. John 15.21 says, All these things they will do on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And this explains why it was the religious leaders who, who most opposed Jesus, since the religion had long since lost touch with God and served only their own purposes. This ignorance is a defining characteristic of this age of the world seen both in those who crucified Jesus and in those who deny him now. 1 Corinthians 2.8 says, None of these rulers of this age understand this, for if they had, they would have, not under, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. And not only does the world's hatred for Jesus prove that it does not know God, but its response to his teaching reveals that the world hates God. Jesus said in John 15:22-23, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been found guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. Jesus does not mean that apart from his teaching the world would not have sinned, but simply state that the world's guilt is compounded by its hateful reaction to his teaching. And consider how remarkable it is that Jesus' teaching is rejected by the world. And we can understand that Jesus had been arrogant in tone since the people rightly object to such an attitude. But Jesus was instead humble. He was gentle in his teaching, especially in dealing with the broken-hearted sinners. My likewise understand if Jesus' words were selfish, revolving completely around his own interests. But Jesus thought that he came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, Matthew 20:28. And some people's words are harsh and others are hypocritical. The world would be justified in rejecting either. 
But Jesus' ministry was one of love for the weak and the rejected, offering grace to sinners. Matthew 11:28. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 7:37-38. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. For men and women to resent the teaching of Jesus, especially as it presents God's saving grace through the shedding of his blood, reveals a perverse hatred that must incur a just and awful debt to the wrath of God. Next, Jesus adds to his words in John 15:24, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. The religious leaders who crucified Jesus had seen his great miracles. John highlights Jesus giving a sight to the man born blind in John 9, 24 through, yeah, 9, 24 through 25. And the resurrection of the dead of Jesus in John 11, 44 through 46. Both of which were miracles that the Pharisees knew to be true. Years earlier, at the beginning of his ministry, the Pharisee Nicodemus had admitted what was obvious about Jesus' mighty works in John 3.2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. This awareness, which ultimately drew Nicodemus to saving faith, condemned those who recognized the divine origin of Jesus' miracles, and yet opposed, hated, and persecuted him. It's simply true today for those who cannot deny the power of God at work in the lives of Christians. And yet, because of their love of sin and hatred for Christ, go on to hate and to persecute Christ's disciples all the more. If you're not a Christian, then you should reckon with these condemnations. Jesus reveals your unbelief as willful, culpable ignorance. But the good news for you, however, is Christ's merciful grace for those who denied him. On the cross, Jesus prayed to the Father in Luke 23:34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Moreover, your hatred of Christ's teaching, especially his gospel message of forgiveness for sins through faith alone, apart from any works or merit of your own, can be remedied by believing the gospel as it continues to be proclaimed. At Jesus' command, Peter first preached to the very religious leaders who had crucified Jesus. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith, Acts 6-7 says. You too may believe the gospel that you previously rejected, and by this means alone receive salvation through Christ alone. Finally, there is hope for you, and that Jesus is continuing to perform his mighty saving works. Just as he gave sight to the man born blind, you may ask him to enable you to see today. And just as Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he can give you new life through the power of his word, 1 Peter 1.23 says. Christ has the power to change your heart, so you should pray to him for the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Yet there are many, many professing Christians today who fall away under the threat of the world's hatred and the world's persecution, reasoning that the cost is too high. Such people fail to reckon on the value of their immortal souls. Others continue to believe in Christ, but live close to the world in fear to challenge its judgment. But Jesus concludes his teaching with a reminder that true judgment belongs not to the world, but to God. And we see this in the statement 
that by the world's persecution in John 15:25 the world the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled they hated me without cause and Jesus is referring here to the Pharisees who would crucify him speaking of the old testament as their law the important point here is to realize that so far as the world being in control and its hatred and its persecution of Christ and his people, the world insisted merely fulfilling what was foreordained and pre-recorded by the God of the Bible. This quotation is from either Psalm 35.19 or Psalm 69.4. But the chief point is that it came from God, just as the world's persecution of Jesus was ordained by God. It was their malice that would nail Jesus to the cross. But it was God's grace at work through his death. Christians would be forgiven of their sins. We should not therefore fear the judgment of, the, of a world that even in its wrath can work only for the praise and the glory of God and the salvation of his people. Instead, we should fear God. That is, we should concern ourselves with his judgment and seek his salvation through a costly faith in Christ alone. This all is not a warrant for Christians to hate the world. God loved the world and sent His Son to be our Savior when we were worldly sinners. Let us love the world enough to be bold and gracious witnesses of the salvation of Christ alone. Jesus' statement that He was hated without a cause reminds us that if the world is to hate us, it should not be because of any ignorance or sin on our part. What our discipleship to Jesus, the evidence of his grace in our lives, and our witness to his gospel of salvation, be the only cause the world has to hate us and to persecute us, so that Christ may receive glory through our sufferings, and that we might have the joy of suffering truly for and with him. You see, we are living today in a world where we need to stand up. Make no mistake about it. As we have seen today, Jesus calls us to a radical life of discipleship. And that part of that discipleship is counting the cost. And so I need to ask you today, are you willing to count the cost, Christian, to follow Jesus in the way of death, which is the way of life, eternal life? See, Jesus... He doesn't promise a bed of roses. He doesn't promise a life of comfort. He doesn't promise a life of prosperity. He says, in this world, you will have persecution. Indeed, Paul says, as I quoted earlier, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That means you can bank on it. It's in the Word of God. As Christians... We need to be bold. We need to stand up. We need to use our voice. All around us are people saying that a biblical sexuality, that, that a man is not a man and a woman is not a woman, and therefore a man can become a woman and a woman can become a man, and that marriage is however you feel like it, and you can do whatever you want to with your pants, your private parts, because it doesn't matter. And yet, God's word says that marriage is established between one man and one woman. That a man is a man and a woman is a, is a woman. And, and God says 
that he created them in Genesis 1, in his image and in his likeness. That means that God assigned a specific gender for a specific purpose to accomplish his redemptive plan. What I just told you is perhaps one of the most controversial things that could be said by any Christian outside of the fact that salvation is through Christ alone. And that it's exclusive to the only those who believe in Christ. And yet here we stand. In this moment. We will either stand up and speak. Or we will fall. Now Jesus said that his church will be built upon the rock of his name. But we as God's people must stand up. We must abandon apathy. Especially in the West. We must Repent of our of our lazy and lackadaisical living. We have so much knowledge. We are a mile wide but an inch deep. And make no mistake about it. With the growing challenges of homosexuality and transgenderism, of multiculturalism and globalism, of Islam of a growing secularism. Make no mistake about it. Challenges abound. In the church today, there are people who say, even just recently, one prominent pastor said that we should unhitch the Old Testament from the Christian faith. There have been other supposed Christians who have said that Jesus' death in our place and for our sin is causing child abuse. There have been others. And and the list goes on and on and on. And yet in all of this, we should not be dismayed. Instead, we should find our joy in Christ alone, in the delight of knowing that we are His and He is ours. And that we are not hated because we, because of ourselves. We are hated because of Christ. Because of our identity in Christ. Because we identify with Christ. I don't know where you are at in the world listening to this today. You might be in Europe. You might be in Asia. You might be in Russia. You might be in Australia or New Zealand or somewhere else. But here's the thing. Wherever you're at and whatever's going on in that country, the thing is, is that God knows. And God sees. And God cares. And God is not silent to the injustice of this age. At the final day, he will hold every man and woman accountable. He will bring out the record of wrongs. And he will bring to justice, bring to light, everything that has been hidden in darkness. And my friend, that is even more reason today to come to the light. Jesus is that light. You see, in in 1 John, John tells us in chapter 1 
if we love the light, we will come to the light. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You know, if we're honest today, which we need to be, we are so unrighteous. We are so unworthy. In fact, it's not until we truly understand that that we are totally unrighteous. We don't deserve this. Until we grab hold of that truth, we don't understand what Jesus did. We don't understand that he died a criminal's death in our place and for our sin. We must grab hold of that truth if we are to stand. We must grow, my friends. But not just in knowledge, but in application of the truths we know. We must not just say the right words. People must see with our actions. Yes. Dave, he loves Jesus, not just with his words, but you can see the love of Jesus in him. You know, we all have room to grow. We all have room to repent. And we all need Jesus. And that is why Martin Luther, his first point in his 95 Thesis was this, that the Christian life is the life of ongoing repentance. You and I, at every second of every single day, need Jesus Christ in order to stand. In fact, John Piper once said that we would not remain a Christian for one nanosecond without Christ. You see, we are His. And He is ours. And the more that we meditate on that truth, the more that it, it becomes experientially true, the more we will stand the more we will proclaim and the more we will be real witnesses of the glory of the grace of God. Now would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word which is true. It's authority. Thank you, Lord, for how we're challenged through this text to stand. Because of you. Because of our identity in you. Lord, we repent. We are so apathetic and so often cold. Especially in the West. Cold to the indifference of abortion and pornography, and adultery, and lust, and the greed of our hearts, our materialism. God, help us to the injustice all around us, to the, to the boys and the girls who are facing sex trafficking all around us. God, God, help us. God, open our eyes. Help us to, to see Help us to know. God, help us to, to stop being so blind. Lord, help us awaken us to our need, our utter need of your sufficient work. Our dear Lord Jesus. 
Help us, Lord, to delight all the more in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.